At Baptist Health South Florida, it's our mission to care for you when you're injured or sick and help you stay healthy and fit. Welcome to the Baptist Health Talk podcast, where our respected experts bring you timely, practical health and wellness information to improve your family's quality of life. Welcome Baptist Health Talk podcast listeners. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Fialco. I'm a preventative cardiologist and lipidologist at Miami Cardiac and Vascular Institute, where I'm also chief of cardiology at Baptist Hospital and the chief population health officer at Baptist Health. From indigestion and acid reflux to IBS and Crohn's disease, millions of Americans suffer from chronic digestive problems that affect their quality of life. And colorectal cancer is expected to cause more than 50,000 deaths this year. Our complex digestive systems can make diagnosis challenging. So in a recent episode of Baptist Health's Resource Live program, which I had the pleasure of hosting, we brought together a panel of experts to talk about digestive health. My guests were Dr. Antonio Ucar, a gastroenterology oncologist at Miami Cancer Institute, Dr. Jose Estrada, a gastroenterologist at Baptist Health, and Lucette Talamas, a Baptist Health dietitian. Let's hear what they had to say. Jose, we're going to kick it off by asking you a question, a broad question. Clearly, through the discussion, we'll be bringing it down towards specific conditions and, and, and questions um, that people may have. But um, when we're talking about GI disorders and various severities, what are the more common gastrointestinal conditions you see or people experience um, that lead them to come towards doctors or even just be concerned about their medical health? What are the more common GI conditions that we see in America? Absolutely. That's a great question. And uh, so the main conditions that I technically see very frequently here in, in the clinic are, like you mentioned, reflux. Um, obviously, it causes a lot of discomfort and it brings patients in to get treated. Uh, abdominal bloating is also a very big, big complaint that people frequently present with. Um, I also see uh, a lot of people coming in for right upper quadrant abdominal pain, gallbladder issues, uh, changes in their bowel habits, whether it's constipation or diarrhea. Um, and more commonly now, so uh, fatty liver, hepatic steatosis is, is making a presence. So, so the bloating, um, is that gas or just a sense of distension? What is, uh, how would you see more, partic- more classically people describe bloating? Um, so both actually. So they they frequently say that after meals they feel full for hours and they feel their belly gets distended, um, and it's they also report frequent belching. Okay, uh, to try and and release that gas gases distension of of the abdomen, uh, and as well as some some flatulence as well. So interestingly, some many of them are symptoms: uh, heartburn, reflux. Uh, bloating, pain, and then the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, I would presume people are more sent to you for that. People don't get up and say, I think I have fatty liver. Um, so the majority of them are symptom related, but you do see things based on findings elsewhere? Absolutely. Um, you know, when people get their general uh, checkup every year and they get labs done by their primary care physician, it, they sometimes notice that their liver enzymes might be a little bit elevated, and then they refer them to us um, for further care. And then when, when you evaluate a patient, and we'll get into some other conditions, of course, through the discussion, um, is there any standard things you do? Um, you know, we always talk about tests, but what about the physical exam? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's part of a, a thorough physical and history. You know, you get a very good exam 
Um, you actually talk to the patient, get their history, see exactly what's going on with the patient. What are the exact complaints? Because a lot of things you can get just by what the patient is telling you. Um, and absolutely, in terms of tests, you know, there's a battery of tests that we run, just basic labs. You know, we can check for celiac disease. Um, we can check um, for anemia, other, other conditions. And if their symptoms persist or if they're severe enough, then we obviously proceed to endoscopic evaluation, right? The endoscopy, colonoscopy, things like that. You know, as a cardiologist, I always feel that by getting a good history for people, asking them provocative questions, when does this occur, when did it start, what brings it on, and listening to them, um, physical exam, you can really get most of the information. You can, you can pretty much determine what's going on, and then we may use tests to validate it or get more degrees uh, of, of, is it the same thing that you're, you're describing? You mentioned that the physical exam, you can get most of that. Is that what you're pretty much saying? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's very important. Um, you know, they, when do they get the reflux? Is it after dinner, uh, in the evening? Um, do they wake up at night with symptoms? Um, you know, a lot of things when it comes to hepatic ketosis, for example, do they, do they drink alcohol? Um, and the physical exam, whether they have any um, stigmata of complications of, of fibrosis, you know, whether they have hepatomegaly, right? Do they have a big liver? Do they have a big spleen? Um, you know, so those are things that, that can key you in to further testing if, if, if warranted. But another important gastrointestinal issue is that of colorectal cancer. And we will have more discussions regarding heartburn and, and IBS and other components um, a little bit further down uh, the, the program. So, so Tony, um, you know, we're kicking off Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. Let's learn right. about risk factors when it comes to certain cancers like colorectal cancer. Are there certain things that make someone more susceptible? Are there certain things people do in their lifestyle or by habits, which you see or it's been reported, uh, increase the risk of colorectal cancer? Yeah, first of all, the, the simple things. Uh, as we age, we have an increased uh, risk for uh, colorectal cancer. So between the age uh, of 50 to 60 is when we start the risk of uh, colorectal cancer jumping. But uh, another important risk factor, I think, is uh, personal or family history of not only colorectal cancer, but uh, adenomatous polyps which are the polyps that potentially uh, can be uh, pre-malignant. Um, as far as uh, habits uh, that could increase the risk of colorectal cancer, uh, diet high in uh, processed meats, uh, red meats, so fats of animal origin in, in general, we recommend to try to reduce uh, the, the intake daily to less than 90 grams per day. Um, also uh, sedentary lifestyle, uh, obesity, uh, smoking is a is a big one. Also, it seems like smoking is linked to many type of cancers, um, alcohol use, and of course, uh, inflammatory bowel disease uh, like uh, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. And those patients have an increased risk uh, for colorectal cancer. So we certainly want to be more attuned. You you mentioned the usual suspects: obesity, um, smoking, um, sedentary lifestyle. Um, as risks, and there's many reasons to be, pay attention, avoid those conditions. Genetic factors, as well as you said, initially IBS, um, patients have to have a higher level of surveillance for colorectal cancer. Would those, those would be your main subgroups? Yes, uh, there are hereditary syndromes that increase the risk of colorectal cancer. Those are the minority of the cases. 
but uh, Lynch syndrome, uh, familial adenomatous polyposis, those are uh, big ones. Okay. Um, Lisette, um, switching gears again, though, of course, diet is, is a major component of all the medical conditions we mentioned. Let's go back to heartburn, partly because it's so ubiquitous and somewhat controllable. Um, we know, I know, certain foods are very clear to trigger heartburn. Are they First, what are those foods? Secondly, do you find by educating your patients about those foods, you're really able to control heartburn, prevent heartburn, what have you? And, and then the third question would be, is it the same foods for everyone or is there an individuality about what may trigger heartburn? So what are the foods? We'll start with that one. Right, the burning question. So heartburn is a common well symptom <laughs> of GERD. Um, and as Dr. Estrada just mentioned, you know, if it's something that's chronic and people are really dealing with, it's good to see people like Dr. Estrada. Um, because it's a very common sy uh, symptom, but heartburn and GERD can be managed um, through diet and lifestyle. So, um, and it is very specific to the individual. So we'll get that you know, cleared up right away. So um, what's going on with heartburn is, you know, everyone between their their throat, their esophagus and their stomach, there's like this little valve, right? So when that valve relaxes, there's actually some foods that can cause the valve to relax um, and then cause the, you know, the regurgitation of the stomach contents into the throat. And that's that really burning feeling, right? So um, there's different foods that can trigger either the valve to relax the sphincter or foods that increase your gastric acidity. So um, in general, what those foods are, you know, you don't have to worry about individual, but here's the list, you know, foods that increase gastric acidity. Well, people can test, they can see if this causes it and I stay away from it. I right. mean, it, it's, it's reasonable. Well, get, re get ready for this list because pepper. <laughs> <laughs> um, any type of pepper, coffee and alcohol can increase gastric acidity. And then foods that can relax your lower esophageal sphincter are chocolate, mint, and a high fat meal. Um, so very, very common in American diets when we talk about these foods. And then when we just talk about lifestyle, so large meals in general, and then fatty meals. So it's not just Thanksgiving anymore, holidays, you know, think about those times we can overindulge. Um, so, you know, if this is something that's common and frequent, that's when you do want to pay attention to this um, and and work towards maybe smaller, smaller, more frequent meals, you know, that might work better for some people at night, avoiding uh, a large meal in general, and then avoiding it, especially three hours before bedtime, because then it's just like common sense, right? You lie down, the little valve is a little relaxed and heartburn, right? So that's the dietary approach, diet and lifestyle is a big part of managing GERD for sure. Do people, when, when you educate them and work with them, do you find that people listen or is it just, you know, I'll take my reflux and I want my coffee? I mean, what, what kind of, and this is a personal experience, what kind of um, a penetration of, of, of the recommendations do you generally see? It's hard. I mean, people, it's, we're talking about behavior change. So it's, it's very difficult when, you know, for people to give up or to avoid these foods. But I think if the symptoms are severe enough, you know, people do want to grab on to what they can in order to feel better because true, you know, consistent reflux or GERD um, is really uncomfortable. And there can even be associated weight loss. You know, if this is long-term, we could de be dealing with a few other uh, nutrient concerns or nutrition concerns as well. So um, you know, it's sometimes people will pay the price <laughs> with their symptoms if they eat something. Um, but yeah. So, so quick question to you, um, um, uh, uh, Jose, obviously there are medications for reflux. Um, 
would you make an argument it's better to correct the diet and not take the medications or the medications work, they're safe, take them. Are there dangers to the medications? Just talk for a minute about uh, a medication a, a medication use approach towards reflux. Sure, sure, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, like you said, medications are, are great, but I do agree uh, with Lisette in, in the terms that dietary changes, if, um, if made, can be almost completely curative. Um, and if, if they adhere by that, then their symptoms, at least in part, are relieved tremendously. Um, but when the when you've tried the diet changes, when you've cut out the coffee, when you cut out the heavy meals, and yet you still have the symptoms, I think that's where uh, medication comes in, into play, right? The the PPIs the, or the H2 blockers, the PPIs being like the family of pantoprazole, omeprazole, ezomeprazole, and the H2 blockers, the famotidine, um, you know, and the old ranitidine, which is no longer on the market, but um, absolutely. And I think for the most part, PPIs, the pentoprazoles uh, in that family, they're all relatively safe. Um, I think that when people start getting into trouble with pentoprazole is when they use it for years. And in theory, all medications have side effects. And, and, and with PPIs, again, in theory, it could be years before they start developing significant side effects, with the most common one nowadays uh, being osteoporosis, right? That's a, a big one that's being brought forward, um, and it's more more on, on, on people's mind, or that's their concern when they come into clinic and that we talk more most about. Uh, Tony, uh, colorectal cancer again, um, um, important, curable, if found early, uh, the earlier found. What are the symptoms, if any, that one should notice to then trigger an evaluation um, um, for a potential colorectal cancer? Well, I think that uh, one thing you just mentioned is a key, uh, and it's the fact that if you find it early, the curability can be very high and the treatment can be very simple. But uh, usually by the time symptoms develop, uh, that's an indication that the cancer is a little more advanced. But uh, symptoms can range from what we call a change in bowel habits, which means that you're moving your bowels more frequently or the consistency of the stool changes or the shape, size of the stools uh, is different. Some patients uh, feel like uh, the stools are smaller or they have to strain in order to have a bowel movement. Uh, other uh, symptoms can be uh, abdominal distension, bloating, uh, rectal bleeding, uh, 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 the feeling of a lump or a mass in the abdomen. Um, of course, you don't want to get to, to those extremes uh, to make the diagnosis of colorectal cancer, and that's why we emphasize so much in screening. So uh, primary physicians are very familiar with the uh, processes that they have to follow, uh, as well as, in, as uh, gastrointestinal specialists. So yeah, I want to get the screening in a little bit, but so you're very clear to mention the more common symptoms that might say you should get checked out. And uh, I'm going to turn it over to Jose in a second to follow up on that, but also the screening would involve patients who don't have symptoms just to see okay. just based on statistics and likelihoods. So I appreciate that. And I want to get back to screening in a second, but to follow up on some of Tony's comments and even what we talked about before, um, not everyone who has an episode of a loose stool has colon cancer. This is for Jose. Not everyone who may have a little blood has colon cancer, though it should be evaluated, whether it's a hemorrhoid or whatnot. 
So tough question, but when should people say this is unusual? I better get checked out. And what do you see in those patterns of people? We don't want people to, like I said, rush the emergency room every time they have a stomach cramp. Um, is there any rule of thumb or any kind of way you would approach educating people as to time time to get checked out? You know, these things warrant uh, an, a, a discussion with a with a gastroenterologist or with a, even a primary care doctor. Absolutely. So I, I think when it's persistent, when the symptoms are persistent, and in terms of of the bleeding, if it is a significant amount, right? If it's, if you have a little bit of blood, um, when you wipe, I mean, odds are that that's very insignificant. It's not really going to cause much. And that's just me, may just be hemorrhoidal. However, if every time that you go to the bathroom, you're having a, a gush of blood coming out, or it's, or it's persistent, you know, months and months and months, um, or if the abdominal pain is getting progressively worse, then I think that's when you kind of have to kind of seek out and make sure that everything is, is, is okay. Um, and in terms of following up with the screening, a lot of, a lot of patients coming are coming in and they don't realize that actually the guidelines have now changed. Um, and it's no longer at the age of 50 that we're recommending their, your first screening colonoscopy is now at the age of 45. Um, so that's important to kind of throw that out there. And, and, um, again, I, I don't want to diminish, um, um, screening. Um, and again, I think we still have time to get to that a little bit more. But when someone has those symptoms, obviously, if they're in distress, they should you know, take care of it emergently. But if something's changed and it's consistent, as you say, um, first step, go to the emergency room, go to primary care, go to gastroenterology. What would you, uh, what would you recommend people do when they're concerned? I think they should first go to their primary care physician. And again, it, it, it kind of it's relative to how uh, intense their symptoms are. If they're having a large amount of blood coming out, then by all means, they should go to the, to, to the ER for evaluation. But I, again, I think if, if it's just a little bit of a month of blood that it's going persistently throughout months, then first see their, their primary care physician and their primary care physician most likely will refer them to a gastroenterologist. And some of the other things like Lucette mentioned is a change in weight, um, unexpected weight loss, uh, difficulty swallowing, you know, um, those are right. the kind of things that would. Those are the uh, the alarm symptoms, anemia, things like that. Yeah. So um, over to Lucette again. My favorite subject is the impact of diet on our health and and, and wellness. Um, you know, we know that um, eating habits have a big component in in driving and maybe even resolving digestive problems. What are the more common GI issues you see when patients either follow certain diets, or what are the more common GI issues that you see can be resolved with certain diets? Broad question, I know, but just, you know, the more common things that you see. It's broad. And as we started talking in the beginning, you know, common symptoms of like diarrhea, constipation, bloating, gas. Um, I think that's what we hear most common. And as a dietitian, my first thought is, you know, if this is chronic, talk to your doctor about it. Um, because we dietitians will work much better having a diagnosis or maybe even a lack of diagnosis. So if they've been worked up medically, we'll know better how to, uh, you know, manage symptoms through diet. Or if there is a diagnosis, we'll also know much better and confidently, you know, how to work diet with the diagnosis. So um, very common symptoms of diarrhea, constipation, bloating, gas. Um, the common, you know, I guess more trending subject is usually irritable bowel syndrome, which is, you know, as we know, it's a syndrome, a collection of symptoms. Um, and, you know, what's newer is, is realizing that there are certain foods that will affect some people and certain foods that don't. 
Um, also clarifying, you know, between food allergy, food intolerances. Um, most people, you know, a lot of people do not have true food allergies. It, they may have a food intolerance. Um, but when it comes to avoiding, you know, for example, the gluten-free diet, like we really want to walk ourselves through and make sure this is truly something that's appropriate for a person and that someone's not just, you know, self-prescribing this diet for no reason. Right. Um, so when it comes to, yeah, go ahead. So I was saying some of it, as you just kind of say, it's trial and error. If someone's really distressed, try this, try try more fiber, try right. gluten, I mean, whatever it is, and 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 then people find what can what can eventually give them more gratification and feel better. Right. So when it comes to trial and error, there's a I don't know I, I think it's a little newer a newer way of um, a new diet right um, to help treat a lot of these symptoms with IBS especially, and that's the FODMAP diet. So the funny thing is that this classifies different type of short chain carbohydrates from fruits, vegetables, whole grains. So they're actually healthy foods, but some people, when they have a certain amount of that, which is usually too much for that person, it's not a food allergy. It's more like a little intolerance to large amounts of that food um, may have these really uncomfortable symptoms of like diarrhea, bloating, and gas. So it's not an allergy, but yeah, it, in order to find which foods are affecting the person, it does involve like an elimination period, a reintroduction period, and you know, slowly working it into the diet. At the end, we don't want to prescribe a very strict diet. We want to prescribe the most liberal diet that someone can enjoy while still managing symptoms. So for those, it's F-O-D-M-A-P-M, fermented oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyphenols, right? F-O-D-M-A-P-S. And polyols, almost. And polyols, polyols. So your, your sugar so, alcohols, basically. I'll have you back. We'll do a session on that. But it is fascinating and actually has cardiovascular consequences, too. Um, Jose, we would be remiss if we didn't have something specific about Crohn's disease. We mentioned IBS. Um, quickly, what is Crohn's disease and how are we hypermanaging Crohn's disease right now? Can it be controlled? Can it be cured? Good question. So uh, Crohn's disease is basically a, a condition where your body kind of attacks specifically specific areas of, of your intestine, right? It likes, it can attack actually any part of the gastrointestinal tract. It does have a, pre, a predominant, it likes to attack more uh, the terminal ileum, which is the last portion of the small bowel and also uh, the colon. It, it usually manifests with crampy abdominal pain, uh, diarrhea, um, it, some patients can, their first symptoms can be uh, abdominal pain, which leads them to go to the ER. They find that they have a, a, an obstruction, um, and, 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 or an abnormal CT. Um, the way that we would diagnose it is a, with imaging B obviously get doing a colonoscopy, trying to get into that portion of, of, of the terminal ileum, the la last portion of the spine test and taking biopsies, confirming the diagnosis and it can be put into remission if, if treated appropriately. And there are good medications nowadays, biologics uh, or immunomodulators, which definitely bring down the inflammation significantly and patients can, can be very well controlled. Well said. And last question before we take a few questions um, from the viewers. Tony, um, screening tests, we're finally on it. Um, Jose mentioned mm -hmm. a little bit about a change in the recommendations, but let's talk specifically about the purpose of screening tests, how frequently you'll see patients to be treated with the, with the discovery of colorectal cancer through a screening colonoscopy as opposed to symptoms. Can you weigh a little bit of those percentages as well? Yeah, well, uh, I think that the 
colonoscopy continues to be the gold standard. Uh, it's a little expensive, more cumbersome because of the bowel prep. Uh, but for standard risk patients, uh, it is recommended uh, approximately every 10 years, and um, it's, it's a good way to identify uh, small lesions, uh, polyps, before they transform into cancer. Um, I mean, there are other easier ways to uh, do uh, screening. It could be fecal immunoglobulin, uh, immunochemical uh, test in the stools, uh, and that can be done once a year. Guayac uh, fecal occult blood um, can be done uh, also once a year. Flexible semidoscopy, or you can combine flexible semidoscopy with uh, test for occult, occult blood um, in the stools. So do you see, um, again, is there a survival benefit for patients that come to you based on finding a cancer with a colonoscopy? Do they have better outcomes than those that present with symptoms? Is that is that not the case? Well, in general, it's true. Patients that uh, have a screening colonoscopy uh, and the cancer is detected uh, in that uh, way usually present with earlier stage uh, disease. Um, many times they don't even have to come to me, but uh, as far as the ones that, that I see, um, they present with earlier stage disease, uh, of course, greater curability. And uh, patients that present with symptoms Usually that uh, is an alarm sign and, and that indicates that the cancer is more advanced and it might take uh, more effort to get rid of it. To our listeners, remember that you can send us your comments and suggestions for future topics at Baptist Health Talk at baptisthealth.net. That's baptisthealthtalk at baptisthealth.net. On behalf of everyone at Baptist Health, thanks for listening and stay safe. Find additional valuable health and wellness information on our resource blog at baptisthealth.net slash news. And be sure to interact with us on our social media channels for live and upcoming events. This podcast is brought to you by Baptist Health South Florida, healthcare that cares.